HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erica Wise, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. The food scene was taped live in Paris at Holly Belly, a wonderful little coffee shop, cafe in the tent. My name is Clotilde Dussoulier. Uh, I'm a French food writer. I was born and raised in Paris, and I write a blog called Chocolate and Zucchini. So you find it at chocolateandzucchini.com. And I wrote um, several books, and my latest cookbook is called The French Market Cookbook. So, you're from Paris, and you say you're a French food writer. Um, yes. What's the difference between Parisian cuisine and French cuisine? The special thing about Paris cuisine is that Paris has historically been the center of France. So, in Paris, you find the best of every region. So, there isn't so much a Parisian cuisine as um, a mashup of several regional cuisines that meet in Paris. Yeah. So you say regional rather than melting pot. Um, is it more nationalistic uh, rather than kind of international? Paris does have a lot of um, foreign influences and right now there's a lot of Brooklyn influence and in general US driven um, trends uh, come to Paris and, and people are very excited about them. But in general we do have a lot of different communities, um, Asian communities, and especially Japanese, so we have very good Japanese food in, in Paris. So it is, the food that you can get in Paris is very diverse, which I love, because it means that, you know, whatever you're in the mood for, you can find it in Paris. And it didn't used to be the case even just 15 years ago. Um, so the Paris scene has really broadened its its horizons um, over the past yeah 10 15 years. So what was the cuisine more like when you were growing up? What, what was a daily uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? So I grew up in a family where food was uh, fresh food, fresh seasonal food was very important. It was mostly French with. Um, 
um, with more of a Provence twist in the sense that it was more olive oil and vegetable based than uh, butter and potatoes like you will find more in the north of France. Um, my mom is a very good cook, but she didn't make a very big deal about it. So I grew up thinking that this kind of fresh home cooked food was just normal <laughs> and I realized that I had been very fortunate um, later when I was a young adult and I uh, left home and, and started having a better sense of what other people were eating. When you left home, I mean we can go straight to Silicon Valley, um, when did that realization happen and what did you do to rectify that? Well, when I moved, so when I graduated, I studied uh, computer science here in Paris, and when I graduated, I um, moved with my boyfriend to uh, Silicon Valley uh, for an internship that became a, a two-year um, job, and all of a sudden it hit me that people around me were not eating the same kind of stuff that I had grown up with, that there were very many restaurants making, you know, serving lots of foods that I wasn't familiar with. And also I just quite simply had to cook my own food, which wasn't the case at my, at my parents' house. And I realized that this was just the most fun I had ever had <laughs> around any subject. I just loved going into grocery stores and, you know, ethnic markets and just pick everything up and, and trying to decide, you know, what everything was and what to do with it. So I, I bought a bunch of stuff. I researched recipes. I bought books. I bought magazines. It was just, to me, it was like a like a hobby. It was really something that I did for fun, as almost as a craft. I like working with the colors, um, the flavors, the textures. It was just... There was also this sense of um, being in charge of my own meals and the freedom that this meant, because at my parents' house, I was eating whatever my, my mother had decided we would be eating. And all of a sudden, you know, if I wanted blueberry muffins, I could just make the blueberry muffins. So it felt like this um, coming-of-age um, step. So did you find yourself doing less Provençal uh, and more California cuisine? And if so, like, which dishes were classics to you that you recreated? There was a lot of baking back then. Um, and I guess I did a mix of things from my childhood that I wanted to recapture, like a quiche Lorraine or um, a gratin de courgette, which is one of my mother's signature dish. It's a zucchini uh, casserole. Um, but also, I would just... I was very vegetable-driven back then already, and one of the things that I was really interested in was trying to fall in love with the vegetables that I thought I didn't love. So I would go out to green markets and buy things that I thought I didn't like, like Brussels sprouts or turnips or spinach. And I would just look for recipes that I thought would be appealing. And there was this this sense, again, of broadening my horizons, of thinking, you know, I thought I didn't like this, but in fact I do. And it just felt like, you know, my world was expanding every time I found something like that. So which, which dishes did you reinvent, uh, you know, to make them in a way that y you appreciated the vegetable? Um, let me think of an example. Um, well, Brussels sprouts, for instance, I had only ever had them at the school cafeteria, you know, boiled to death and um, mushy and bitter. And I realized that um, either searing them quickly or roasting them um, made them so much, so much more flavorsome. So that was that was when it was about cooking technique rather than actual dishes, I guess. 
it's a very analytical thing to kind of think about technique and then afterwards think about, you know, flavor and color. Did you find that your computer science background kind of help you craft a recipe in, in a different way than, you know, uh, someone who went to cooking school? I have always found that uh, having um, a programming background was very helpful in approaching food and cooking just because cooking is uh, both an intuitive and a scientific um, um, pursuit. And I think what helps me most is when I write recipes. To me, writing a recipe feels very much like writing a computer program in the sense that you give instructions and you have to make allowances. You know, there are lots of if and then <laughs> conditions where you have to say, you know, if you find that uh, after 30 minutes uh, the cookies have not set, then, you know, uh, put them back in for another five minutes. So, um Otherwise, you know, take them out of the oven and they're done. <laughs> so, so I do feel like you can tell the difference between recipes that have been written by someone with an analytical mind. You know, there won't be any fall uh, holes for you to fall into, <laughs> yeah. and um, that doesn't preclude me from using, you know, a certain writing style. It doesn't mean that the writing style is dry or programmatic. But I think, in terms of conceiving the recipes, there's something. Um, there's something good to be drawn from a from a, um, a computer background. Yeah. I mean, yes, you have so much personality. Um, so after that logic, how do you express yourself? I mean, what, what was the impetus of chocolate and zucchini? Well, first of all, I've always been throughout throughout my school um, training. I was I always had the scientific. Um, side of me and also I was I was uh, very interested in the writing and the literature side I just picked computer science because it was what people you know society told me was the better choice and perhaps the more marketable choice um, but I've always written um, I just hadn't found the topic um, it just so happens that when I started writing about food I realized that this was a, sub a subject on which I could write endlessly, and that seemed to keep me endlessly interested. And so I started chocolate and zucchini 12 years ago, and I'm still just as interested as I as I used to. But um, the reason why I started chocolate and zucchini was that I was devoting a lot of energy to um, to cooking and eating and food in general, and. I was a little worried that my friends and, and my family would get tired of me talking about this all the time. And so it felt like a good thing to, um, you know, find a, a, an outlet for those things and kind of find my tribe, I guess, which is really what the Internet, I think, has given to the world is that whatever your passion is, you know, you'll find other, you know, geeks you know who are just as passionate as you are about that one topic I mean, we're talking we're talking a dozen years ago when there wasn't this proliferation of blogs i mean who was out there and what were the platforms used so 12 years ago when i started chocolate and zucchini there must have been about a dozen food blogs they were mostly written by americans it was just a handful of enthusiastic cooks very few of them still um, blog to this day um, but there's Elise from Simply Recipes for instance who back then had it was, so it was Elise.com slash recipes and the platform back then it was either Blogspot or um, Movable Type uh, WordPress was still in beta <laughs> and um, so I used Movable Type back then and I've, I've migrated to WordPress um, since then which is now the standard 
Yeah, so I mean, coming from that programming background too, um, how did you use those platforms to the best of their abilities in both a logistical and creative manner? Well, to me, to me, setting up setting up the platform on so we had our own server from the very start, and it was certainly part of the of the fun for me was to set this up, this set this system up, and create my own theme, and you know, um, program little widgets uh, that would display you know an index of recipes because it was still a very uh, those platforms were very pared down <laughs> back then. You know, it wasn't it wasn't what what they are. Today. Today. So it was definitely part of the of the cooking fun for me. It was also to cook up the actual technical website. So, recipe wise, as well as the name, deep down, what does chocolate and zucchini mean to you? Because it seems like such a quirky, um, like two random ingredients put together. Um, and how has that kind of inflected itself in your cooking style? Well, I I decided to call it chocolate and zucchini to illustrate. Um, first of all, two ingredients that I love to work with and to illustrate. So the zucchini is a symbol of my love of vegetables and seasonal foods. And the chocolate illustrates my interest in sweets and desserts and chocolate in particular. I'm very passionate about uh, chocolate, which I think is just as deep a subject as as wine or um, or you know vinegar <laughs> and um, and so chocolate and zucchini also had a nice ring to it and I'm really pleased because 12 years later uh, those are still two ingredients that I really like to work with and um, the simplicity of the name those ju- just those two ingredients is still a good illustration of the way that I cook because chocolate and zucchini is about simple fresh seasonal colorful foods with with a French twist because um, it's everything from my Paris kitchen and um, and so I'm very vegetable driven as I mentioned and it's all about finding ways to cook on a daily basis in a way that keeps you excited because I feel like this is where the real added value is for a blogger it's not so much about the special occasion dishes or the really indulgent um, cake recipes to me to me, what's really exciting is to get people excited about cooking on a daily basis, even when you're tired, even when you don't have a lot of time. To me, that's what people really need. I mean, do you find recipes that were posted, you know, a dozen years ago, uh, still in that repertoire? Or how, how have you seen your dishes evolve? Um, there's from the very beginning, I had a lot of very home style. Um, simple everyday recipes but back then I was also interested in serving some dishes with a slightly um, a slight restaurant style twist like in terms of serving vessels or presentation which is not my focus at all now I just feel like there's restaurant food and there's home style food and I firmly you know my own cooking is firmly in that second in that second category I'm not interested in serving things in little glasses or you know having little swirls of balsamic vinegar reduction on the plate (laughs) which was something that I played around with when I started but I don't I don't do that anymore I mean is that a similar trend to restaurants in Paris as well are they cooking more home style and less uh, composed um well 
Paris restaurants are really all over the map in terms of sophistication and plating, but certainly balsamic vinegar swirls are are a red flag for me. I mean, if if you find that on the plate, you know, I'll just I, I I'd rather not eat there because <laughs> it's just it's just a little out of fashion now. Um, but in general, I do see that the trend is towards more simple plating in in the kind of mid-market kind of restaurants where uh, you know you can go on a Saturday night with your friends and um, you know not not the really high-end places not the really classic bistros but somewhere in the middle people who are doing interesting things at an affordable level the plating is usually very simple it's very graphic um, and sometimes it can feel a little um, um, aesthetic <laughs> you know it can feel a little um, overly simplified um, you know like you just have a piece of fish and a little dab of sauce and you're like okay <laughs> it feels a little too simple but sometimes you have a taste and and it's it's actually the message of the dish is that is that the flavor um, surpasses the presentation, which is, which is an interesting point to make. the dishes that you know you've written recipes um, what kind of signifies that what what are the most simplistic things that you've done that express themselves ten times mm. well I think back to recipes like um, for instance I have on chocolate and zucchini I have a recipe for chicken in a bread crust which is a pretty simple recipe where you wrap a whole chicken in a bread dough and you wrap it up and you put it into the oven and it's just so much more than the sum of its parts because um, you get to eat the chicken that cooks inside the bread and still becomes golden and crisp for some reason and you also get to eat the bread so you have the outer crust that's really crisp and you also have the inside of the bread that's soaked up the cooking juices from the chicken and so it's a kind of dish that's quite simple to make but the idea of it is uh, brilliant I can say that because it's not my idea to begin with um, but it's just this thing that you can make pretty easily and have it be a, a very impressive original dish to serve to friends you know, in, in the time of mashups, uh, I'm going to use the cronut as an example. Um, to put something in croutes, you have two kind of food things, again, kind of conflated together. Um, I'm, I'm surprised, actually, that in croute isn't a more popular trend these days. There is actually um, a chef like Alain Passard really put en croute on the map. for. Um, so he's a chef who grows his own vegetables uh, in his own um, vegetable garden and he does beet in a salt crust and so you 
put a whole bead and you pile up, you know, coarse salt over it and you bake it. And so the bead roasts inside the salt crust. I just have a problem with the salt crust thing because it means using a lot of salt to cover up that single bead. And then, and then what do you do with all that salt? <laughs> um, so I did do chicken in a salt crust, um, and I have a recipe for that, but I like the bread crust better because you actually get to eat the crust. It's sustainable. It is sustainable, yeah, yeah. And you have the bread, you know, that's kind of built into the, into the, the starch that's built into the dish. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a very, again, homestyle dish that you, know, you serve to friends, but what, what restaurant dishes have influenced you in a way that you've gone home and say I want to make an element of this or I want to recreate this dish and again present it to my friends in a non-restaurant-y manner well there's one that I have on my list to um, try and replicate it's a dish that I had at the Plaza Athene which is a three-star uh, restaurant run by Alain Ducasse so it's, uh, it's a pretty high-end restaurant and they make it's actually funny because it's in the same theme as the chicken and the bread crust it's, it's cauliflower in brioche and so it's it's a whole head of cauliflower that I think is probably par cooked and then wrapped in um, in a brioche dough and then and baked. And so they bring it to the table, and I think it's you get you get like a, a slice of it, and it looks it presents beautifully. And of course, if you can imagine the cauliflower with a buttery brioche dough, it works really really well. And it seems to me like this is really something that you can... It's an idea that you can run with um, without making it super... Um, I, I like the idea of having a home-style version of this dish that's served at a, at a, at a three-star restaurant. Not to bring it back to Brooklyn, but uh, I've certainly seen the trend uh, kind of in that gluten-free sect um, of cauliflower pizza crusts, where people take cauliflower and mix it, I think, with egg and cheese and... Um, it's not. It's not better for you. It's not for paleo. Um, but you, you mentioned Brooklyn being kind of uh, highlighted here in Paris right now. What specific trends have you seen come over, and have you kind of partaken in any of those? Well, it's um, it's a lot about the decor of places that have a more. So newer places have more of a slightly industrial look to them like there may be a former workshop or industrial like a like a factory where and actually we are at Holly Belly which is a coffee shop here in Paris and they they have the steel pillars uh, that were originally here that are exposed and you have this unfinished um, um, unfinished floor and exposed brick walls so there's that sense to me that's a Brooklyn aesthetic um, we also have a crazy amount of burger places which is funny because I when I moved back from to Paris from California 13 years ago I was desperate to find a good burger place in Paris because it was just not it was just not a thing. And now every week there's a new burger place, you know, craft burger place that opens which drives me crazy because we don't need that many good burger places in Paris. It's like, you know, just why don't you just find some other idea? But there are a few places who do um, um, French take on the burger. There's a place called Big Fernand and another called King Marcel. And they both do burgers with a French twist, so they'll have French 
French cheese in it, it's French meat, and they just do a kind of mashup of a very, um, uh, very traditional working class French um, um, tongue and cheek kind of approach to the burger, which is which is fun and works really well. I mean, they're both very popular places. Yeah, I mean, is that humor? Um Do you see French places kind of taking that same singular idea and modernizing it into that more myopic, you know, like poulet roti? Uh, do you see, like, old-school poulet roti places and new-school poulet, uh, poulet roti places? Um, I, I feel like poulet roti is... Um Well, when you when you mention poulet roti to me, I think of rotisserie places, which is um, so roast chicken places where you buy your roast chicken to go are very popular in Paris and, and have long been. Um, it's a very popular thing on a Sunday morning to go out and buy roast chicken to serve to your family. You might you might buy the potatoes from them, or you might make your own. But it's a good Sunday lunch. It's an easy Sunday lunch to make. And um, and there are certainly new new school uh, rotisserie places opening up where the focus will be on the breed of uh, chicken. So there's a place called Soliles in the 18th. Um, so Soliles is the oyster of the chicken. I don't know if you're familiar with that small morsel of flesh that's on either side of the backbone of the chicken. And it's in French, it's called Soliles, which means only... Only dummies will overlook this um, yeah. this cut. Anyway, so it's called Soliles, but it's spelled differently. Anyway, it's too complicated to go into the details. But but that place, you can get a roast chicken, and, and there are three or four breeds of chicken of heritage uh, poultry that you can pick. So at varying prices, and there are several places like this in in Paris. So it's not so much about a, you know it's not factory raised <laughs> chickens so it's kind of upscale chickens um, and there's also a place called Le Coq Rico um, uh, it's a restaurant that specializes in um, in roast birds um, it's also in the 18th in my neighborhood yeah um, it's a very funny thing that you, you kind of mentioned the chicken uh, last year at Heritage we kind of did like the year of the chicken um And I know you just went out and did some uh, research about croissants. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's the year of the croissant in Paris. I mean, it's it's omnipresent. It is eponymous yeah. with being here. But what's changing about it? You know, is there just a best of the new list? Or are some of those ideologies like uh, heritage grains going into croissants? Um, I think croissant is sort of an evergreen topic. Um, there isn't a specific cook this year, but I feel like it's an interesting time to revisit that theme because um, because croissant, the croissant is a very, it relies on a very simple formula. There are very few ingredients, so there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> And in from, from an, an industry perspective, it's also a product that's very expensive to make in terms of, um, of uh, man hours. It's a very lengthy process if you want to do it right. And it's a product that people are used to paying just a euro for. So it's almost impossible to make a profit on a croissant because people won't, aren't willing to pay. I mean, people don't have it in their head how much a croissant actually costs. Um, and so it's an interesting there's an interesting conflict between that simplistic 
daily pleasure that people yearn for and the economic perspective that, that you know, means that this simple idea is just not realistic anymore. Yeah, I mean... An inelastic thing you have to change the ideology about. And uh, you mentioned to me before um, Dupont et Décidés. And tell me about how that has kind of become an icon of new baking in, in Paris. Well, uh, so Dupont et Décidés is a bakery that was started by Christophe Vasseur who's a very skilled um, baker, but it's actually a late-blooming uh, baker um, who had a, a, a former career in sales. And his approach is a very um, um, focused one in the sense that he has few products in his range of products, but his idea is to really devote a lot of R&D to every single product that's in his range. And one pretty um, drastic thing that he did was that he doesn't make a baguette anymore. He used to, but then he decided that it was drawing too much attention away from products that he was just more interested in, in making, such as his pain des amis, which is a very long fermentation, very assertive um, slab of bread that you buy by the... by You buy kind of... Um, cubes of, for lack of a better word, and it's a very smoky, smoke-flavored um, bread that has really um, acidic notes to it. It's a very, it's a very unique bread, and it's his signature bread. He and he makes a very good croissant also, but um, he's just the kind of baker who doesn't take anything for granted. He doesn't just follow. The, because he wasn't born into it or trained at a very young age, I guess he has a more more of an outsider's look um, at, at what it means to be a baker in the 21st century, and so he just does it his way. I mean, again, he's such an eccentric person in, in, in those uh, you know, sensibilities. Have you found yourself researching singular things like croissants? Um, right now, like, what are your reference points? What are your favorite things to kind of delve into? And what do you see yourself doing in the next year, five years, ten years with chocolate and zucchini in your research? So, with chocolate and zucchini, my, um, I really want to... My, my purpose is really to create stellar content for people. So, it's, it's mainly among two, along two directions. One is to offer recipes that are easy but have this twist to them that makes them really unique and teach you something also. My goal with every recipe that I make is to make you a better cook once you've cooked it. And, and I, want, I want my readers to learn something from the recipes that they make and to get a tip or a technique or some kind of takeaway that they can incorporate in their own in their own daily cooking because I feel like you can really you really start to have fun with cooking once you free yourself from recipes and so paradoxically my goal is to have my readers um, become you know um, free themselves from the shackles of, of recipes even though recipe is what I'm what you know is the stuff that I'm dealing um, and so that's one, the home cooking with a twist is, is one of my main um, angles. And the other one is 
to really um, offer a fresh perspective on Paris and show what it's like to live in Paris today, what's, what's exciting without being overly uh, fatty, <laughs> um, interesting trends, and also just offer... Um, offer a way for people to, who come to Paris to experience the city in a way that's not like in the postcards or not like in 30-year-old guidebooks, you know, not, not everyone else's Paris, um, but a local's perspective on what makes my Paris special. If I may ask the one heavy question, um, you know, in light of recent events, why is it so important to be here now and to go out and eat in bistros and be convivial and, uh, you know, celebrate everything that this city has to offer? So, in light of the recent terrorist attacks, I think... One, one, one thing that's at the forefront of every Parisian's mind is that these attacks were, and I'm kind of getting choked up <laughs> talking about it, but these attacks were aimed at a certain Parisian lifestyle because um, the attacks were aimed at people who were having drinks on sidewalk terraces with friends on a Friday night. They were people who were attending a concert, you know, listening to live music. And even though Paris is not just about going out with friends, you know, when you're in your 20s, it's still, you know, street life and being with others is um, it's very much a Parisian thing to do. And so after the initial, you know, week-long shock, um, there was this sense that life... Life goes on, and if we don't want terror to win, um, it's important to continue to go out and to sit at sidewalk terraces and to go out and listen to music, because if we don't, first of all, they win, and second of all, those people who run those businesses, those musicians who play you know, live music, um, you know, they're going to be collateral damage. Um, and so it feels like... It feels like making sure that Parisian life goes on is is our collective mission. Um, and you know, we're sitting. You know, it's it's ten days um, after the attacks, and we're sitting at a cafe. And I'm really pleased to see that it's packed. <laughs> um, and I feel like maybe the joie de vivre that Paris um, has, in spite of everything you know it's it's an enduring um it's an enduring spirit i think um the motto of uh paris is uh fluctuate net mec mergitour which means you know the the boat will rock but it won't sink and and you know we were hit but we won't you know we will prevail Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 